Welcome everyone to the show. Today is a great episode because we have Jennifer Maynard and she founded Greater Greens, a regenerative organic farm, and then co-founded Nutrition for Longevity, which is a farm to fork meal kit company with a focus on bringing nutritionally tailored meals to the masses direct from her farm. And we also get into regenerative farming, gut health, healthy immune systems, so many things. So if you want to live long and be healthy and feel great, this is a perfect episode for you. And make sure you listen to the end because we're going to have a discount code. Enjoy. Welcome to the Kaka TV podcast, your source for all things health, happiness, and beauty. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. Very excited. So today we're going to talk about all things regenerative farming. But first, we want to know all about you. So what was your career trajectory like before you dove into regenerative farming? I I think I'll start back from where I came from. So I grew up on a homestead in Alaska for nature, with nature, living through foraging and growing a lot of our own food. Then I moved to California, very different lifestyle there. Um, but I've always stayed really connected with growing my own food and even foraging where I can for herbs and different things like that. So I've done that my entire life. But um, when I was younger, my uncle died of AIDS and it was in the eighties where there just wasn't any standard of care. And it really drove my passion towards science and medicine. Um, and I actually worked in the healthcare field for 20 years in the specialty medicine area, trying to create therapies for things like HIV AIDS, um, hemophilia, where there's, um, these are really challenging viruses that didn't have a lot of understanding or genetic disorders and things like that. So I spent about 20 years doing that. Um, I moved into, uh, you know, management levels doing that. And then I took a step back a few years ago and just said, you know, I think as an industry, we've made incredible progress with some of the specialty medicine areas, some of the genetic disorders, some of the really acute and, and challenging illnesses like HIV AIDS. But when I take a step back and look at chronic illness, I felt like we just have not made as much progress as we should be, especially that we're now realizing that 80% of that can be achieved through lifestyle change and not through an, an injection or a pill per se. And so I decided to completely shift my career to put more focus on that. And my passion was food is medicine. So I really wanted to do more prevention and intervention with food. And I believe the source of that is how the food is grown. Just if you get it right from the very beginning and then you combine it properly in the meals, I think that's where the golden spot is. And um, if we look at a lot of chronic illnesses today, we know that they're very much um, impacted by our diet and by our food. So that's where I shifted. I completely left my career as an executive and bought a farm. <laughs> so completely shifted. Um, and we started or I started uh, Greater Greens with my husband, um, which is our regenerative farm. And then we started our meal kit company about a year later called Nutrition for Longevity. 
And that's just really been my passion. Um, I believe in modern medicine and that there's places for it, but I believe we're too reliant on the pill and the injection and we're not doing enough with the food side. And for me, there's two pieces of it. There's the environmental aspect that regenerative farming brings. And then there's obviously the human benefit that it brings if you're creating this this pure clean food for people to consume. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at now. It was a, a big shift and a big change, but I've always grown mainly my family's own food. And I just felt like this is something that I'm really good at. I have the science backing to understand and, and turn that into something meaningful for people to consume. Um, and I understand enough about biology and soil biology because of my schooling that I, I just felt this is something that I could really help a lot in this industry and bring it forward because we're, we're very backwards when it comes to food in the US. We spend the least amount of any country in the world on food and we spend the most on healthcare. Um, and we're really going in the wrong direction when it comes to chronic illness. Our, our numbers are shooting through the roof. So I, I feel like those are very connected. Um, and I feel like that's where we can have a lot of impact if we grow really healthy food. I'm totally on board with you there. We know that our drinking water now is full of scary contaminants. Flint still doesn't have safe water and the list of places like Flint grows every day in this country. We're also hearing that the soil has been depleted. So why do you think we haven't done anything in the United States to tackle our basic need for safe water and safe food? So I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, part is if you go back to through the history of farming and you look at what's happened over the years, farming was heavily impacted by wars um, and heavily impacted by our degradation of the soil. So if you look back, every world war created more um, more movement towards the cities and more of this urbanization um, shift that we saw. And that created a lot of challenges, partly a lot of farmers, their, their sons or their daughters didn't come back to work on the farm. They moved to the cities because they had been exposed to these other cities. So you had this massive urbanization. And the other thing that happened because of that is most of our settlements in the U.S., if you go back from the very origin, happened around the most fertile land. So we actually have shifted off of the most fertile land over time. So you already had that effect happening. And then we've been kind of devastating our soil, unfortunately, from like day one. If you look at how a lot of immigrants were brought over to the U.S., they were given free land to try to recruit. And this was done mainly by our railroad systems to recruit more people so that there was a need for railroads. So they needed to create supply and demand. So they brought a lot of farmers over and they gave them free land. And unfortunately, we treated it like free land and we over overused it. So we've been over tilling even when we were doing it with horses and mules and different animals um, almost from day one even they had what they used to call bonanza farming even in the um, you know late 1800s early 1900s where they would have like 50 um, horse-drawn plows lined up I mean it's like our modern day agriculture but way back then with with just horses. So we were already starting to deplete, to deplete the soil so we could produce more produce for this massive urbanization move. And we saw that really hit kind of its epicenter in the 30s where we saw the Dust Bowl start to happen and it wiped out a lot of our agriculture land 
because by that point, already in the 30s, we had depleted a lot of our soil in our farming areas down to dirt. And that's what created the dust bowl. A lot of people don't realize we created that. It was partly drought, but a lot of it was really messing up the ecosystems in our agriculture land because everything from stripping the land, reducing the organic matter, and we can talk about that in more detail, um, we started that path and we, we started seeing the first heavy, heavy effects of it in the 30s. And the result of that, if you look at the New Deal, what came out of the Great Depression because of true starvation happening in the U.S. at a, at a scale we had not seen before, um, what came out of that is a lot of policy that subsidized mainly crops that could be turned into fast, really fast food, very cheap food. So you had corn subsidized heavily. You had fortified um, grains. So grains were subsidized heavily. You had dairy and meat production so we could get it in mass volumes. So if you look where mass production started to really accelerate, it was out of the New Deal from the Great Depression. And there was this massive fear that people had of starvation. And companies used that to build an entire industry of essentially junk food. If you look at where most of our white bread, our super processed white breads and our fortified milks and different things, they came out of this necessity to, to, to bring cheap food in as quickly as possible to feed America because there is this massive fear of starvation. That's a direct link to our current food system and it never really changed. The policies never really changed. If you look at subsidies back then and subsidies now, it's the same crops for the most part that are being subsidized. If you look at the food that it's creating, it's cheap food and mass volume that has a lot of additives, fillers, anything that could be done to create the cheapest food possible. And unfortunately, it might have been a good stopgap to feed America during the Great Depression, but we never shifted away and back to a healthy format of food and a healthy cycle of food. So, um, and then in the 50s, we came out of World War II and we started using a lot of the chemicals that were generated out of World War II. So a lot of the chemical warfare that was used in World War II got turned into pesticides and herbicides and chemicals. And in the 50s, they called it the Green Revolution. It was the first time they brought in ammonia and nitrogen fertilizers, which were also a byproduct of World War II. And they brought in these herbicides and pesticides and realized this chemicals that were being used to literally kill people, we could actually use to kill pests as well. Um, and that was called the Green Revolution which I kind of find ironic because it was bringing in a lot of chemicals and a lot of tillage. And that's when agriculture boomed. If you looked, you know, one person could do the work of four people before that time. So it looked really efficient. It looked like the solution to feed America for eternity and it looked cheap. And that's what we focused on. And unfortunately we never looked at the devastating consequences of adding all these chemicals to our soil and adding tillage mechanization. Even the USDA will agree that mechanization and tillage was probably one of the most destructive things that we ever brought into agriculture because it literally decimates our soil organic matter, which is like a sponge. When you let it grow, it, it retains water so you don't have as many issues with drought. It allows the soil microbiome to thrive because it allows this matrix for a neural network to grow on. It does all these incredible things. It sequesters carbon from the atmosphere. You know, farming is one of the 
number it's it's the number one thing we can do to start reversing climate change. It's the lowest cost and the fastest thing that we could do as a as a world um, is shift our agriculture practices. So there's so much um, that goes into that that we're not factoring in. All the focus has been since the 30s on producing cheap food, and we're not looking at the other consequences of it, especially in the U.S. I 100% agree. I know that that was also around the time when they introduced these seed oils, corn oil, Mm -hmm. soy oil, and that's never been in the human diet before. So then we get all these inflammatory conditions. Yeah. So how is regenerative farming different from traditional farming or what's done in this country now? Yeah. So one of the things, one of the biggest things we focus on and most regenerative farms focus on is the reduction or complete elimination of tillage. And tillage is obviously when you're taking a till and scraping into the top layers of the soil, usually down to about six inches. And what's nice about that for farms, why it was created was it cleans out your weeds off of your property. It gives you a clean slate to start a new fresh crop. Um, But what it also does is it breaks up again, that soil organic matter, and it doesn't allow that sponge, that matrix to be created, which retains the water and retains the carbon and allows the the soil microbiome to thrive. So that's the first thing we do is we we really don't till our soil. Once we cut a bed, we do bed rows because we mainly do vegetable production and, and some fruit orchard production. And then we do aquaponics farming, but we don't after we cut those beds, they never move. And what we do is we just, we keep kind of layering on top to build up the soil organic matter. So we use a lot of compost. That's a second component of it. And that's bringing nutrients back into the soil that have been stripped from the previous crop, but also from years of being overly abused. And so compost is essentially um, old vegetables that can go into the ground, leaf litter, grass clippings, you know, any inputs that you can get that can break down and decompose and add nutrients back into the soil. So unfortunately, with a lot of um, conventional farming, they're not doing that with organic matter. They're not adding this decomposed matter back. They're just adding chemicals. So you're losing volume. They're using losing a lot of volume through through erosion as well. A, a regenerative farm, because of this matrix that cr- we create, loses about 700 times less of their soil through erosion because it stays in place. And so a conventional farm is losing a ton of their soil and they're not putting stuff back into the land. So we do a lot with no tillage. We do a lot with composting and then we do a lot with cover cropping. So we use other plants to keep the ground covered year round. So Soil is actually very sensitive to UV. A lot of the things that humans are sensitive to, so is soil. So we protect it. We keep a cover on the ground as often as possible. Um, We try to never leave it exposed because it can wind, water, UV light, all of those things can damage soil. So cover crops allow you to keep a root base in the ground and they continue to build up that soil organic matter and nutrient exchange Um, And they protect the surface of the land as well. And then we use a lot of perennial hedgerows and perennials grow deep root bases normally because they're there forever um, as long as you take care of them. 
and they also create pollinator habitats for native species. We have lost in the U.S. about 80% of our insect biomass. So um, that's, if you look at that from a food system standpoint, a life cycle standpoint, that's pretty, pretty catastrophic levels of loss. And what happens on a lot of farms is you have more invasive species starting to outnumber your native species. So we do a lot to build up the native native species. And that's our number one combat against pests is native species pests. So we let them kind of wipe out an invasive species of say aphids or something else or flea beetles or something that we don't want on the farm. We'll make sure we have native beetles that will keep those numbers in check so we don't have to use pesticides and insecticides on the farm. Um, and that's, I guess, the last thing is we don't use any synthetic chemicals. So we may use something like garlic oil, which a lot of pests naturally don't like. It's a phytonutrient that garlic creates, um, um, or there, there are phytonutrients garlic creates that most pests don't like. And so we could spray that on a crop that maybe has aphids on it and it'll deter them from damaging that crop. But we don't use like pyrethrin or other um, pesticides or insecticides that might bioaccumulate in the soil and impact the good beneficial insects and microbes that we want to thrive. Um, so we keep, you know, we, we're void of those chemicals building up in our soil. And I would say those are the main things that we do as a regenerative farm to try to um, rebuild our soil and allow nutrient exchange. We do a few unique things on our farm as well. So we do have um, some goats and chickens. They also break down um, food faster. So a lot of vegetables, they like a lot of vegetables and they'll break that down. And hoofed animals do really accelerate the regeneration of the soil. So we have a little bit of that. Um, we don't do that for meat production or anything. We just have um, some rescued animals on the farm. And then um, we really, again, use that all in a combination. And we actually use some of our aquaponics water, also the, the waste that's generated by the fish to remineralize our soil. So that's probably one fairly unique thing that our farm does that a lot of other farms don't do um, just because there, there is a depletion pretty much across the board with most farmland. And so we're trying to accelerate that as quickly as possible. That's interesting because I, I noticed on your meal service that you also have pescatarian. So I was wondering, how does she get the fish? Now I know aquaponics, very nice. So you use it for, you get the fish from that? We, do, we actually don't. <laughs> okay. We get all of, yeah. So we get all of our fish sustainably caught, wild caught fish. Um, and we follow the Monterey Bay Aquarium guidelines of fish that's not over um, fished and has sufficient um, volumes in the sea to sustain those fish. Um, we do grow tilapia on the farm, but it's not for production of our own meal kits. Um, that fish is mainly to work with the symbiotic system that you, you have with aquaponics, whereas the fish waste is used for the produce and the produce then cleans the water and goes back to the fish. So it allows us to have very little use of water. Most of our water loss is actually in the vegetables themselves. Um, and the fish are really part of that system. So we theoretically could harvest those fish for the kits, but that's actually not um, why they're in the system. Okay, interesting. So what secrets do some regional diets hold that can help us in reducing chronic illness? So what we follow with our diet is the longevity diet for nutrition for longevity. So 
we focus on um, the regions of the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. And that's research that Dr. Longo's done for the last three decades on what is so special about these regions where people live past 100. And they don't just live longer, but they live healthy longer. They're almost void of chronic illness. And obviously, I think everyone is interested in that. How do I live the, the best part of my life? How do I extend that part where I'm mobile, I have great cognitive ability? Um, so that's what's been researched. And it's really looking at what do those areas have in common that we could break down kind of at a scientific level. And what Dr. Longo realized is these regions have a lot of similarities. They're eating very similar foods. They're eating very similar macronutrients. And there's a few commonalities that I think are really important. And what he did is he took that to a cellular level to understand what's really happening in the cells in these people that are allowing them to really extend or, or, or have this incredible longevity. And, you know, he came up with science had focused almost solely on programmed cell death, what causes aging. And he really wanted to investigate the opposite, what's programmed longevity. How do we actually program ourselves to live longer? And he found a few really, I think, critical things and that are important for people to understand is two things that have increased immensely in the American diet are sugar and overages of protein. And what he realized is these areas consume much less of those two ingredients in their diet. If you look at the standard American diet, we're eating about 70 grams of added sugar per day per person. That's about 57 pounds a year of added sugar. And we now know scientifically that this accelerates aging. So it activates the RAS and the PKA genes, which act, and, and then it inactivates different factors and enzymes that protect our cells from oxidation and damage. So not only is it accelerating the genes that cause aging, but it's actually deactivating really important factors and enzymes that protect our cells from damage. So we know that sugar is really um, causing us to accelerate our aging in the US. And that's probably for me, one of the most important things. And it's why we really encourage people to take a lot of added sugar out of their diet. It promotes inflammation. There's a lot of different things that it does, but we know that it accelerates aging and areas of longevity have very little added sugar. They do eat fruits, they eat vegetables, they eat things that have sugar, but they don't have this refined processed sugar. It's almost completely void in their diet. Maybe once a year for like a holiday, they have a little treat, but it's very, um, it's very uncommon. And then protein, we also know that we're consuming about 50 grams more protein per day in the U.S. than what is recommended. And we're consuming a lot more protein than these regions are consuming and mainly a lot of animal based protein. So most of these regions are vegan, completely vegan, vegetarian or pescatarian. So if they do get um, protein from non plants, it's usually always coming from fish. And what's critical here is we also know that protein, especially if we're consuming too much of it, also activates pro-aging genes. So the IGF-1, TOR, and, um, and, and we know that every time we're consuming more protein that, that, than is needed, we're activating these genes and accelerating our aging. So those were two of the biggest takeaways that um, we talk about and we try to promote is really balancing your protein levels. It's important. I don't want people to think I should stop eating protein. It's a building block for the body, literally your DNA. 
is made out of amino acids. So we're not saying that protein's not important, but most people in the U.S. obsess about protein and they're worried, they're always worried they're not getting enough protein. And in reality, we're getting too much um, on average. So those are two big takeaways that I think people just have to be really aware of is, am I consuming too much, especially non-plant-based proteins in my diet? And am I consuming too much refined sugar? And I think people, we encourage people to do sugar detoxes um, just to get it out of your system because it's, it's a very addictive substance. Scientists have said it's eight times more addictive than cocaine. And I believe that because I've been a sugar, sugar addict <laughs> at times in my life. Um, and it's really hard to break that. But once you do, you actually realize your taste buds completely regenerate every two weeks and you taste food in an entirely different way. You also, these are other benefits other than just the aging piece. We also know that because we consume so much sugar and insulin, we have this dopamine blockage. Our body is actually, because we're overdosing it in these, um, we're trying to regulate our dopamine and downregulate it. And so when people start to take their sugar down, that down regulation changes and shifts and they actually start getting the normal energy levels and balance in their body um, from normal foods and they start to take down that insulin cycle. And we now know insulin when it over accumulates in the body also blocks leptin, which we now know is what tells our body to, to stop eating that we're full. So um, it creates this kind of vicious cycle in the body that promotes aging. It's impacting chronic illness and it's actually causing obesity. And all of these things we're realizing are, are fully interconnected. So those are things that we focus on. The other is, you know, the sources of protein. Every one of the regions that was extensively researched consumes a lot of legumes in their diet. So they have a lot of beans and, and lentils and um, that's where they get a good source of protein every single day. Most of them eat a half cup of beans every single day or legumes. And so um, those are just some of the takeaways that I think are important from the longevity diet of the theory of program longevity. How do we live longer, fuller lives void of chronic disease? And that's kind of the, the whole premise behind the, the longevity diet book. Do you believe in eating and what's in season, what's local, or are you more on the side of find the superfood whenever and wherever it may be? I'm a little bit of both. I definitely think with your base of your fruits and vegetables that you're consuming fresh, I think it's really important that you do support seasonal produce, partly because for the environmental reasons, it's ideal that you're consuming fresh local food as much as possible. Um, I think that's when a lot of foods are highest in their nutrient levels. So when we buy a lot of produce that's grown maybe in another region, in order to ship that, a lot of times it has to be picked very premature. So it probably hasn't hit its proper nutrient level yet. Um, so tomatoes are a really good example. I've had people say, how do your tomatoes taste so different than a store-bought tomato, which a lot of times will taste like water. And, you know, I, I, been around the agriculture industry for a long time. So I know most tomatoes are picked very green and then they're shipped. So they're very firm when they ship and they don't get smashed. And then they're gassed on location where, when, where they're going to be consumed. And so you have a tomato that probably was picked six weeks plus before it was actually at its prime and then shipped and stored for probably several weeks. And then, um, 
sorry, six weeks before you're going to consume it. That, that tomato, by the time you consume it, is about six weeks old. Um, and then again, they gas it on location. That's what turns it red, but it's not going to change its nutrient profile per se. So I just see that um, our food model is, as I mentioned earlier, all about kind of mass production, but it's also about logistics. It's not about nutrient um, density per se. So I think when you get um, local seasonal foods, you're actually allowing those things to ripen, be at their best and prime and then ready for consumption. So we focus very heavily on how fresh and ripe the produce is and how quickly we can get it to someone's door so that that nutrient degradation doesn't happen. I myself, and we, we make some uh, blends of freeze-dried uh, powders for some of the superfoods that are just really high in phytonutrients that may be hard for me to get, say, in New Jersey in the middle of winter. So I do actually myself um, consume certain superfoods year-round or, or maybe seasonally as well, like around the cold season and things like that. That's me just personally what I do. And I try to get freeze-dried ingredients because it's um, the it, it preserves 99% of the nutrients um, and the fiber. So it keeps the fiber pretty intact. And so that's important to me is, are there good preservation methods or even frozen food? I know frozen food can get kind of a bad rap, but I buy a lot of frozen berries in winter to put in smoothies and things like that because they are usually picked ripe and then they're preserved through freezing. Um, so I think there are certain things you can do to make sure that the nutrient levels are retained as much as possible. Um, and, you know, I, I don't do that with everything across the board, but I do do it with certain things when I want to get, you know, more nutrients into my body at certain times of the year. So what are some of the phytonutrient rich foods and why are they important to our health? So when I look at phytonutrients, I look at color spectrum. Most phytonutrients in plants manifest um, as color, so their pigmentation. So in the U.S., we're, we're, we have a very muted palette, so it's kind of beige, you know, if you look at it on average. And that's a lot of processed foods. But if you look at raw whole foods, even when they're cooked, you can retain a lot of incredible um, phytonutrients in them. And so we talk about eating the rainbow for me, that's really important. Even before COVID hit, I would take my kids to the grocery store and I'd have them, you know, if we didn't get it on the farm, I'd have them pick out five colors. Like, okay, you're going to pick out five colors. I didn't care about anything else in the cart, but they had to pick out their five colors. And, you know, at the farm, obviously they can pick it fresh as well. So they're kind of lucky that they have that accessibility as well. But I really made a point of always trying to pick five different colors. And that's what I tell a lot of our clients or different people that I talk to about phytonutrients is focus on the color spectrum and the diversity of color because each of those colors is an indication of a broad spectrum of phytonutrients that you're bringing into your body. I think we have a tendency to get really stuck on just one or two vegetables that we eat every day or every week. And we don't venture out to other fruits and vegetables or or different color spectrums. So we may be getting a ton of, maybe we're eating a lot of broccoli and we're getting a lot of sulforaphan, which is incredibly important and great, but maybe we're not consuming onions and garlics and getting um, um, allium and, and some of the other beneficial things. Or maybe we're not eating a lot of purple vegetables. You know, carrots are one that I love to get purple varieties. We grow a ton of purple crops on the farm because they're really high in anthocyanins and they're common in a lot of the longevity regions 
but much less common in the American diet. And carrots are funny because all carrots before the 1700s were purple. We actually hybridized them to orange. Um, so it's just interesting how we've depleted a lot of our color out of our diet when it's really, really important for us. So I really encourage people eat a broad spectrum of color and obviously get your proper servings of fruits and vegetables. Only one in 10 people in the U.S. eats enough fruits and vegetables, and that's only six servings. When you look at longevity regions, they're eating a lot more than six servings per day. But if you look at the U.S., just the six servings that are recommended, only one in 10 people consume. And we know from thousands of studies that consuming the fiber and fruits and vegetables um, that bring a lot of that fiber and then healthy grains can reduce your risk of can some cancers, of heart disease, and type 2 diabetes, and um, have been linked also to obesity. So it's not even just the color, but even getting the needed amount is severely lacking in the U.S. So I really encourage people really put an emphasis on the volume of fruits and vegetables and then the color spectrum. I think it's extremely important. And just flipping even the way we're trained as Americans, um, and I think this is being adopted now across the globe, not just in America, but I think it kind of started here, is we have this obsession with protein. So if you go to a restaurant, how do you order? You order a, a, usually a huge slab of meat, which is your entree, and then you order a side dish, which is your vegetables, and they're usually maybe a quarter cup of vegetables. Um, and usually most vegetables, two cups is a serving, so leafy greens. So we're we're way underdoing the vegetables and we're way overdoing the protein. It should really, I tell people, flip that, flip that thought process in your head where your entree is this incredible spread of delicious, um, diverse vegetables, and then have your protein a really high quality piece of protein. If that, if your preference is meat protein, I encourage people to live a reducitarian lifestyle. I, I, I don't push veganism just because I do think it's hard for a lot of people to suddenly shift over. But if you start incorporating more vegetables and start really focusing on high quality protein, um, then we see people start to really shift. They start to enjoy vegetables more. They start to adventure more with different vegetables and they start to see their entire diet shift and their preferences shift. How does biodiversity in the soil affect soil health and human health? So very good question because I talked about tillage and chemical use and how that can damage our soil microbiome, but I didn't talk too much about the biodiversity piece, which is really important. So a lot of our farms, the average farm in the U.S. grows about two crops, and that's because farming is hard, even if you're only growing one crop. There, And it's getting more difficult with a lot of environmental shifts with um, climate being just much more volatile. And so growing diverse crops is very challenging, but it's really important because just like the human microbiome, we like diversity of color and we like those phytonutrients that help feed our gut microbiome, the soil microbiome is very similar. So it likes biodiversity to help build soil microbiome biodiversity. If you have monocrops, it's going to, so one or two crops, which is the typical thing in the U.S., you're really selecting for very specific microbes. And then you're using a lot of chemicals that is also um, certain chemicals like herbicides are some bacteria just naturally are more resistant to those and others are very susceptible to it. So 
you start building up also monoculture microbiomes that have much less diversity. So for us, the more different roots that we can put in the ground to interact and feed the soil microbiome, it's really important. And having a diverse microbiome is, is critical because it is the immune system of the plant. You have to think of it as we're realizing that our gut microbiome is where most of our immune system also resides. They're calling it the second brain because it's directly linked to a lot of our neurotransmitters that we generate within our body that make us happy. Like serotonin, people don't realize 90% of your serotonin is actually created in your gut, um, facilitated by your gut microbiome, microbiome. So it's literally impacting our mood, how we feel, our energy levels. And it's, it's similar with the soil microbiome what we call the rhizosphere microbiome is where the root system of the plant exchanges nutrients with the, the soil microbiome. And we know, you know, bacteria have been around for 3.5 billion years. They have a lot of ancestral knowledge and they help the plant cope with stresses. So that, that bacteria may have been through really aggressive droughts and they can send signals to the plants that help them cope with say a drought situation. And, when you deplete some of that bacteria out of this ecosystem uh, that the plant is living in, um, it doesn't have those stress coping mechanisms. So we're essentially weakening our plants and its ability to survive. So it's not ever just the plant, it's the plant plus its microbiome that keeps it healthy. And the, the diverse microbiome is extremely important to do that. If you look at it, again, it's so similar to our gut microbiome in if we feed the soil microbiome around the plant, we're allowing that plant to be much healthier and um, to grow much more robust. And to the point where we're finally through the Human Genome Project, which has shifted over into other areas like the soil microbiome, we're realizing that the microbiome of the plant is even changing. It's You're hearing more and more about epigenetics. It's actually changing the way the plant is is manifesting its genes, which is really mind blowing to a lot of people that we can, it's not just about it happening at this metabolic, like high level, but it's actually happening at a, at a genetic level. So for example, um, in a drought situation, the microbiome can help the plant um, make changes to the way they send out their root. Maybe you have a typical vegetable that sends out a deep tap root but in a drought situation, it may need to send out more fine root fibers. And the soil microbiome is what's facilitating the plant to make that change and to adapt to its environment. And that's what we call epigenetics. And that's how it manifests in plants. And we're actually realizing it's exactly the same in human beings, um, which is profound that we're just now realizing that we're very dependent on these microbiomes again, that have been around a lot longer than we have been, 3.5 billion years, um, that they're really helping us cope with stress and they're helping the plants cope with stress. So it's it's really incredible and it's really important. And we pay so little attention to what's below our feet, what we can't really see. Um, and with agriculture, it's, it's a must. We really have to start paying attention to this and letting it thrive with less chemicals, more biodiversity and less tillage are probably the three most important things to really allow that biodiverse microbiome to just thrive. 
What would you say is the importance of diverse fruits, vegetables, and healthy fiber in relation to our human gut health? As I mentioned, only one in 10 people are getting the needed fruits and vegetables. And I would say the two biggest things are the phytonutrients. So they're extremely rich in phytonutrients, which um, we see help our body in a very diverse, uh, in very diverse ways. But we know they can have support with oxidative stress. Um, We know that they can help feed our gut microbiome and activate certain things with our gut microbiome. Um, And then the fiber, what's really important on the fiber side of things is a lot of the fiber that you consume as a human, you're not digesting. So you can't actually use that fiber, but it serves a lot of purposes for the human body. One, it fills us up. So when you eat whole fiber foods, um, that's why I don't drink a lot of juice unless it, it retains the fiber in it because I want that fiber in my body. And it fills you up, and um, especially with this whole insulin leptin cycle that I talked about where we're blocking the signal that tells our body we're full, we need as much as possible to tell us that we're full um, because most people overconsume food, and it's because of this this cycle that we see. But when we're able to fill it with fiber, we feel much more satiated in a meal. So that's missing for a lot of people. The other thing is, we don't digest that. Our gut microbiome does. So it's literally food for your gut microbiome. You are feeding and selecting the, 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 a healthy gut microbiome. When we don't feed fiber, we see that the gut microbiome doesn't thrive and it starts to really become almost like a monocrop itself. And we want a diverse flourishing microbiome. So the fiber is really important to feed our gut microbiome. Um, And then, as I mentioned, phytonutrients can trigger different things in the body. Um, It can also, we see that fasting is one of the things that can trigger um, cellular regeneration. It it kind of puts the cells into a protective state. And we see other phytonutrients do that as well. You've probably heard of anthocyanins, which are in purple vegetables, or resveratrol, like um, what you hear a lot with drinking red wine It's in a lot of grape um, skins of the grapes. And those have been researched pretty extensively on the the health benefits of of those, just as two examples. So we know that they trigger certain metabolic pathways and we see a similar response um, with benefits of protecting the cells with feeding and fasting and feeding foods that are high in fiber and phytonutrients when we do eat and then protecting the cells when we go into a fasting state. And that's in the longevity book. Dr. Longo is really focuses a lot on the fasting side, um, making sure that you have these periods of fasting that help trigger this in your body. And then when you do feed, that you're mainly eating a a very plant-rich diet to get a lot of these um, beneficial ingredients into your system that, that trigger your body at a cellular level. Longo, he's the one who did the fasting mimicking diet. So, so yeah, Walter Longo, so he wrote the longevity diet and he has two pieces to it, fasting regimens. And so he created the fasting mimicking diet. So the, the marketable product is Prolon and that allows people to um, do essentially the equivalent of a water fast, but with very tightly, precisely um, curated food at a restricted level. So it's, very precisely designed um, to allow your body to stay into a fasting state without 
moving out of the ketosis state. So it's it's a deep fast. It's it really truly um, allows your body to respond the same as it would with a water fast, but without the side effects. So it's important for that cellular cellular regeneration. He designed that for the programmed longevity. Um, and then the other side of it, so he has the fasting and he talks a lot about intermittent fasting, things like a 12-12 circadian rhythm to get your body in a rhythm. And one of the biggest things around that is just our constant consumption of food. We're, we've become grazers in the U.S. where we're eating from like six in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. And the body wasn't really designed to do that. The body needs periods of a break where it can carry out other cellular functions and detoxification and regeneration. And we never give it that break to do that. So he really promotes in his book the need to do at least a 12-12 circadian rhythm on a daily basis, which is probably one of the easiest things I ever incorporated in my life. People always think it needs to be this extreme diet change. But a 12-12 just means you fast for 12 hours, you eat for 12 hours. It's the equivalent of I go um, I wake up at, say I wake up at seven o'clock and I start eating or I maybe have a pause and then eat around 730 or so. And then I stop eating at seven or 730. And, and then I have this period of time before I go to bed that my digestion settles. And we see a lot of benefits to the intermittent fasting when it's done properly. Um, and then the prolonged fasting is more, you do it based on, um, if you look at a lot of religions and a lot of civilizations that have thrived from a health standpoint, almost all of them incorporated some sort of longer term fasting into their annual regimen. So maybe they do it once or twice a year. I do a prolonged fast four times a year just because I feel the difference in my body. And then I do intermittent fasting every day. Um, and so that's the fasting side of it that he focuses on. And then there's the feeding side, which is what uh, my company focuses on is how do you, when you do eat, how do you make sure you're eating the right foods in the right combination to really optimize the, the, your metabolism, um, the food and the phytonutrients that are going to your body, the fiber and all the things that we know help, um, optimize your health. Yes. I love prolong. I do that maybe about four times a year, the fasting mimicking okay. diet. Yeah. And I always do the intermittent fasting. I usually don't eat until 2 p.m. every day. Okay. And I have maybe yeah. about a six to eight hour window. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you're then very experienced and have seen what that can do to get your body into a rhythm. Like for me, I'm a light sleeper. I always have been. Um, my daughter's five. She's a light sleeper. It just seems to run in the family. But when I do intermittent fasting, I just... I personally see that it gets my body in this rhythm. And as long as I do stop eating um, around seven and I give myself three to four hours for my body to just, you know, slow down a little bit before I go to bed, I just, I sleep so much better than if I'm eating right before bed. And then my body's still kind of digesting and getting these slugs of insulin and different things to cope with. Um, so I think that's great. And that, those are two things like I really, um, personally, like just friends, family, just encourage people just start with a 12, 12. And then as you get more experienced, you can see what your body can, can handle. Um, but just getting even in that circadian rhythm is just, I think, incredible. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the things that are kind of takeaways from the longevity regions of the world where people live kind of the longest, healthiest lives is these very kind of regimented 
fasting programs and then these, um, I mean, again, it, it's not, I think people automatically think oh, this is a diet, it's super restrictive. But if you look at the longevity diet, it's actually not very restrictive. It just has certain macro ratios so you don't overdo that sugar and you don't overdo your protein. Yeah, it's very doable. So I personally know that I cannot eat something like processed frozen pizza and not crash a few minutes later or processed yeah. food in general. Anything high in sugar bloats me, destroys my gut, makes me a cranky person. So how does the gut health affect our daily lives and influence everything from our immune systems to our mood? As I also mentioned, the gut does create or regulate a lot of our neurotransmitters. So if you're not feeding your gut healthy food, like I, I'm the same way. Like if I eat, sometimes I will have a weak spot and I'll eat a bowl of ice cream or something. And I don't do it that often because I know better, but sometimes it's just like, I've had a rough day. I deserve this, which I also know better <laughs> to convince myself of that, but we do it. I think everyone does to some degree, but I, I literally know when I'm eating it, how I'm going to feel afterwards. And I do think when you eat clean um, regularly, you are hyper aware of that. So you become very um, sensitized to how you feel food. Um, we have people say a lot like your food just feels good. And I said, yeah, because you're letting your body clean out all that junk and you're letting just whole food plants into your body and it's doing its job. And so um, so you have a few things happen. One, I would say the biggest one that's happening with most people, if you look at the standard American diet is we're again, we're just consuming a lot of processed foods, which translates into a high insulin spike in the body. And that creates an overage. That's why we have a lot of pre-diabetes, diabetes, a huge amount of insulin resistance. And we're seeing metabolic disorders just shoot through the roof in the US. And I believe it's, it's absolutely linked to our processed foods. So because even if it's not just pure refined sugar, it's a lot of processed grains and just highly processed foods that your body, they're almost fully pre-digested. So they hit your body really fast and it almost doesn't know what to do with it. So with insulin, it starts to build up in our body and then it starts to do things like I said, block your leptin, which is the it's what tells your body, it's the hormone that tells your body to slow down your eating. You, you've eaten enough food, you can stop eating. So it makes us, it tells us you're full. And we're turning that off in most cases because we got too much insulin circulating. And only recently did we find out that was blocking leptin because they knew about leptin. We just didn't know what, why it's turned off. And now we know it's insulin. And it's a lot of foods that either are already insulin, sugars that really quickly convert into insulin in the body, or different processed carbohydrates that eventually turn into insulin and they just, they, they shoot it through the roof. So we see these incredible spikes and those spikes do things like, like I said, downregulate our dopamine. So because we're overdoing it, our body is trying to cope with it. And it's like, this is too much. I'm going to downregulate, but then it takes so much to get your energy levels up. So you have to keep doing it. It truly is like a drug addiction with sugar and insulin where you have to just keep consuming it to get any sort of dopamine response just to feel normal. So like if I eat a, like a, a small cupcake or something because I don't eat a lot of processed sugars, I am, I'm like a child. Like, I mean, I'm bouncing off the walls. Um, I'm super sensitive to it because I don't have that down regulation. So I'm just, it hits me so hard because I, again, my body doesn't, hasn't 
um, had to cope with that because it's not getting it constantly in my body. And then things like serotonin, when you're feeding your gut microbiome fiber, you're actually feeding it. It's regulating your neurotransmitters. Serotonin is what makes you happy. 90% of it's coming out of your gut. Um, it's helping you feel that that natural stimulation of I feel good. I can go. I can go for a walk. I can get through the day. Whereas if you're feeding it junk food, it's actually you're seeing the reverse. You're seeing this um, kind of crash that you feel, or this food coma that a lot of people feel after they eat unhealthy foods. And it's because it's creating these cycles in your system that are blocking important neurotransmitters that are supposed to trigger your body to get moving. Instead, we're blocking those things and it's telling you to go sit on the couch. And so it's really contributing a lot to not just inactivity, which we see a lot of negative consequences of, but it's also contributing to weight gain and obesity because we're not moving as much and we're blocking these um, really important hormones that are telling us you've eaten enough food, you're not hungry, you don't need to eat in five minutes. So it, I kind of call it the vicious cycle because it's literally just telling us eat more of the same junk and you're constantly just feeding it. Mm-hmm. And we've all been there. How are plants and humans interconnected and how have we lost this connection and what effect has it had on our bodies? Very good question. So I think that, you know, if I just even take it to the fundamental kind of primitive brain, if we look at, because uh, I talked a lot about um, stress coping mechanisms, our bodies used to be able to connect with food and kind of know what we needed if we were under stress. So um, our primitive brain would actually narrow our vision, um, our color spectrum to really um, kind of almost razor focus on vibrant colors like your bright berries, like your blues and your reds, because it knew it needed certain phytonutrients to help cope with that stress. We now know we're so disconnected with food, we've lost that ability to connect with what the body needs. And so humans, you know, used to self-select that, just like the soil microbiome, a plant self-selects part of its soil microbiome. It decides what organisms it wants to interact with to help it cope with stress. So it's it's actually pretty incredible that we've we've disconnected that for the plants by kind of decimating the soil microbiome and we've disconnected that for ourselves through our food system. And if you think we trick ourselves in a lot of ways, we have artificial colors, artificial flavors, artificial sweeteners. So our body's like, I don't know what red means anymore. Is it red velvet cake or is it a, is this a strawberry? Um, and is it really a strawberry or is it a fake strawberry? And so we've had this, this major disconnect where our bodies just don't, don't entirely know what they need. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's, it's intentionally marketed that way. Um, most big food companies have food engineers that are literally designing food to be addictive. So, you know, I've heard people call it different things. The, the, there's the frosting effect, which is when you combine sugar and fat, it becomes even more addictive. Um, there's the bliss point, which is kind of the point that we know people, if they go beyond that point, it's completely irresistible. So, you know, a lot of food companies, because they know there's more and more science showing that the sugar's not good, they'll say, well, it's okay, just eat it in moderation. Everything's fine in moderation. But they're literally designing the food 
to ensure you can't eat it in moderation. So someone's not just going to eat three cookies, they're going to eat a whole sleeve of cookies or maybe the whole bag of cookies or box of cookies. So um, we see that that these responses that the body naturally had before where it would literally trigger us to eat certain foods, we've now tricked it to where our primitive brain is working against us. It's now telling us we're literally starving. You need to eat as much as you can. And we've cut off the things that tell it to turn that off. Like you've had enough now. So our primitive brain that used to help us used to say, these are the types of foods you need. And we had a lot of fasting. You know, it was, if you look at hunters gathers, you had periods of fasting and you had periods of feeding. So the body could cope with it. Now it's just constant feeding and it's feeding on the wrong things. So our primitive brain severely works against us now because it's telling us you need to forage, you need to feed right now because this is available to you. And again, we're missing the trigger to turn it off and then we're not doing the fasting side of things to bring that back into balance. So it's just, um, it's really tricky for us and that's why I encourage people until they can start reconnecting with food. So, so even plants have even an air microbiome. If you, if you even like, I've, I've had a lot of people say they love gardening because they just feel really good when they're interacting with the soil and the plants, even before they eat it. And so there's certain smells, there's things that even when you connect with food and you allow your body to actually take a pause and connect with the food, it already starts the pre-digestion pre process of your body. So you're starting your salivary glands, your body's starting to create enzymes to already start to digest that food even before it hits your body. And we eat so fast and we've masked so many of those smells and flavors that, um, again, we're not triggering pre-digestion either. So we eat food so fast, we never even allow those signals to happen that you're kind of priming your body for food. And then we eat so fast, it can take almost 20 minutes for a carbohydrate to register in your body that you've eaten it. And a lot of people are done with their meal within 20 minutes. So not only are you blocking the leptin, but you're not even, you're not even letting the signals make it there, even if they're not blocked. Um, so there's a lot of importance of, you know, we talk about mindfulness of food. I try to always like, it's great if you're cooking your food or you're heating your food and you allow yourself to just smell the aromas give yourself a moment and allow yourself to connect with what you're going to put in your body and just be much more conscious about it because there's things subconsciously happening when you just take a pause. That's such an important point. And I feel so many of us have problems with stomach acid. It'll be get produced later. So then we get the reflux, not at the right time because we didn't have the smell and all the triggers to start producing it. Yeah, absolutely. And with, with plants having an air microbiome and a soil microbiome, also with us being so distanced and the food being so processed, we're not connecting with their microbiome anymore. I, even though my main farm is only five minutes from my house, I still have a garden. And that's just because I want my kids to be part of the process of growing food. I tell everyone, even if you can't have a farm, cause probably not everyone's going to have a farm. It's a lot of work, <laughs> but, um, if you can just even grow an herb on your windowsill, like I tell people, grow microgreens. They're incredible. They grow fast. Your kids can cut them with scissors and eat them. Um, but anything to just connect with a plant at that level, it's very therapeutic, but also um, you're, 
you're connecting with those smells and senses and touching it and touching the soil. And I, I just think there's a lot that we don't know yet, even. I'm not even going to say that we know everything of that connection. But again, most people you talk to find complete joy in interacting with the part of even planting a seed, nurturing a plant, and then consuming that plant. And they just feel this deep connectedness. And I think we're just starting to learn about the soil microbiome and the effect it has. And hopefully we start regenerating our soil fast enough that we're not just eliminating a lot of species before we even understand them. I mean, there's more microbes in a teaspoon of soil than there are people on this planet. And we know about 1% of it. So there's so much more that, that we need to understand about the interaction of these incredible organisms that have been around for billions of years longer than we have. There's got to be things that they're doing right and that they can help us with as even a species. Um, so I think that interconnectedness is so important. I think we're just starting to scratch the surface in our understanding of that. Every time we make a breakthrough, it's extremely profound on the health consequences or benefits of that, like epigenetics, which is a fairly new field. And we're starting to understand that plants and different things that we put in our body actually impact us not just at that you know oh i'm digesting food i'm consuming food but it's actually changing our genetics um i think people have to really really think about that because it's it's pretty amazing if we think we're not just um given this set of genes and we're stuck with them there's a lot we can do with food and lifestyle to really affect our health it's not just this this um you know either i got good bads or i got um, you know, all right, I got good genes, I got bad genes. It's really, this is the genes that I have. This is the set of cards I was dealt. And how can I make the most out of that, even if I have certain vulnerabilities? Like I know in my family, we have issues with heart health. So what am I doing to feed my body to shift that and to to minimize the effect that it could have on on my body long term? And so that's another thing I think people really have to think about is even if you have a lineage of things in your family, can you be the one that breaks that? Can you be the one that shifts it with lifestyle changes? So a lot of my audience, they're women, they have female hormonal imbalances, things like that. So how can eating foods that were grown in a natural state reduce our healthcare costs and tackle things like chronic illness? So I think, as I mentioned, a lot of hormones and neurotransmitters associated are very much being linked to the gut microbiome. So we, I work actually with, there's some gynecologists that actually focus heavily on food to help a lot of their women through different hormonal imbalances, because we know food can have a dramatic impact on our hormone balances. And I think for women, we go through a lot of cycles in our life, um, whether you've had children or not had children. And you can see from woman to woman, it can be very different, your experience. Some people can have early onset menopause really early on in their life and, and can have a lot of challenges with it. <clears throat> but then you have other women that, you know, obviously it's a change in their life, but they go through it with almost seems like no effect or impact on their life at all. Um, I mean, obviously it's an impact, but they seem to just roll with it and not, you know, have it have much of an impact on their lifestyle. And so um, I think food becomes a really important part of facilitating that. It's not just food, it's other aspects. Are you getting good sleep? 
are you exercising and staying active? And I don't mean that it has to be this intensive cardio workout every day, but are you moving? Are you walking? Are you getting your body's metabolism going? Um, I think we have a lot of challenges. Are you too, too much stress in your system? We know all of those four things can dramatically impact your hormone levels. So I think for women, it's important. Like I put a lot of emphasis on that for myself to try to get those four things in my life. I don't work out every day anymore. Sometimes I work on the farm. Sometimes I'm just making sure I'm playing with my kids. For me, my definition of working out has changed through reading Dr. Longo's research. It doesn't have to be necessarily this intense workout. I used to be a um, a triathlete and, and a runner. And I'm not saying I don't stay active, but it's not this, um, oh my God, I didn't work out today. It's this, okay, I jumped on a trampoline with my daughter and I ran around the yard and today that's going to be enough, but I'm still moving my body. I'm, I'm getting myself winded. I, I try to just get myself winded every day. Um, and then the, the healthy eating side of things and then sleep, um, sleep can even impact how we digest our food. So getting adequate sleep. And that's where I focus on the circadian rhythm because the, the intermittent fasting, because I've seen that it can really help me um, get into that cycle with my body and get into a better sleep pattern. So um, I absolutely think it's it's instrumental as men and women, because even, I mean, a lot, a lot of people avoid the topic of erectile dysfunction and things like that, but they're also linking more male issues and hormones and things like that also with, with food and lifestyle. So I think women, it's extremely important. How do we minimize the effects of this? We see a lot of young women now um, having a lot of hormonal problems, even in their very early teens. Um, and that's shifted a lot. And I think it's absolutely linked to our, our eating habits and our lifestyle. The processed food, I think, is just really sending our bodies, instead of these healthy cycles that our bodies naturally designed to get into, we're sending it into these spiraling out of control negative cycles. That's why I mentioned the insulin leptin cycle, because it's just one example of this vicious cycle that your body gets into. And I think hormones and, and things like serotonin and dopamine, when we're blocking those and we're not getting a healthy response in the body, we're creating again, these vicious cycles. They make us tired. They make us cranky. They make us crave comfort foods. And, and then we just jump down the rabbit hole again. Um, so it's hard and it's hard for people to get out of that. Once you're in that cycle, it's, some people have told me like it's really painful to go through the two weeks of sh of sugar detox. I get headaches. I feel fatigued, and again, it's that dopamine down regulation starting to to reverse. And so it takes time to do that, and it takes really conscious effort. And that's why I think a lot of people struggle with diets and different things. Is you if you don't break that cycle. I believe you won't be successful in any of the other things because you have to get yourself out of these cycles. And I think for women, there's the hormonal cycles as well that we just get into with, with not properly feeding our gut microbiome fiber and whole fruits and vegetables um, on a daily basis. And uh, honestly, throughout the day, I'm not saying I stress about food, but I do, I do consciously go, I didn't, I didn't eat enough vegetables today and I feel it. I don't have to even think about it, but I do probably make that a higher priority than anything else that I think about during the day. They say people think of food like 250 times a day or something like that. 
um, most of my thoughts that come up are not, I need that cake. I need that. That's not what I'm usually thinking. Did I get my, did I eat enough color? Did I eat enough fruits and vegetables? And I think that's a really important consciousness to get to that you're focusing on priorities to feed your body, that food is a nutrition, it's an input. And I think when you separate that and you think of it as that way, and you allow these cycles that are telling your primitive brain, I'm going to starve if I don't eat this cookie. If you can get yourself out of those cycles, you can start elevating the way you think about food in a much more kind of conscious way, less primitive brain, more rational brain saying, okay, you know, I'm going to eat these, this purple thing. Cause I haven't had a purple vegetable in a few days. And so I'm going to shred some carrots into my salad or something like that. I think it's important to get to that point. And it, but it's a journey and it takes time and I think it needs support. You know, I always tell women, try to try to get with some friends and do a sugar de- detox together or try to eat a try a new lifestyle diet like the longevity diet, but do it with some friends and support each other and lift each other up when you're going through that hard, like breaking the cycle. Cause it's, it's truly an addiction. Sugar is proven to be a completely addictive substance and we have it in everything it's in your condiments, it's in your salad dressings. Like I see people, they'll eat this really healthy salad, but they'll douse it with a ton of sugar in their salad dressing. And I'm like, oh, so I think we've just got it in everything. Like if you start reading labels, you realize sugar's in almost everything, um, even in your meat. <laughs> so um, I think it's just really important to gain that awareness and, and think about it and start allowing your body to detoxify from those things and become independent from them to where you can start feeling things in a different way and allowing these cycles to get on the right track. So let's imagine for a minute that you are like, say a single mom working long hours with very little time to cook, but also not a lot of extra money. So that drive-through seems pretty tempting, but what are some tips on eating healthy, quick meals on a budget? I mean, obviously I designed a meal program to try to be easier for people And I think people become really unconscious of the money they spend to get fast food. So it, it, we've programmed in our head, it's cheap. It's not as cheap anymore as it used to be. So even if you're driving through um, a drive-through of one of these big chains, you know, a lot of people are spending $20, $30 before they they leave. And so I tell people, be really aware because you don't think about it. You give your credit card, you're like, I got to get this, it's cheap food. It's not as cheap anymore. So I think that's one thing I, I tell people is start actually looking at how much that's costing you or your coffee. That coffee is probably one of the worst rituals we've kind of ruined in the U.S. where we're putting so much sugar in coffee and it's become a sugar craze, whereas coffee can be really healthy. But we spend a lot of money on it. We way, way overpay per glass of co- or per cup of coffee, um, but it's not bringing the health benefits that coffee can bring. Um, so I tell people, start looking at how much you're spending on your your coffee that's actually chocked full of sugar and calories and your fast food, and you'll realize it's actually not as cheap as you think. So so that's one thing. And then I tell people, you can. there's a lot of things that you can do to incorporate. Like I said, I buy frozen blueberries. Um, I buy fresh ones when they're in season, but I don't buy as many. They're, they're pretty expensive, and I buy organic because blueberries have a lot of pesticides if they're not organic. Um, but organic blueberries can be pretty expensive and I don't know, are my kids going to eat them? Are they not? Or am I going to be dumping a whole tray in my smoothie one morning? So I buy a lot of frozen ones. Um, 
and I'll just keep them in the freezer. And if it's a summer day and I don't have fresh ones, I might just give my kids like a half cup of frozen blueberries and they eat it like a popsicle. And so I think there's ways that you can, even for your children, get healthy foods into your diet in a, in a really easy way. Um, I mean, we have people that get our meal kits just fewer days for us just so they can uh, reset and remember what it's like to eat a healthy diet. Um, and, you know, how do I put, pull together this kind of a salad? Like for, for me, you can pull salads together pretty quickly. We, we, we feel like this is this, this kind of mind block, but even if I'm in a rush and I can jump into the grocery store and if I don't have one of my own meals, I will grab just one of those packaged, um, like, uh, like shredded broccoli or something package. Even if I don't get it organic, I want the vegetables. You know, I, I always try to get organic, but sometimes it's just not an option. And I, I'd still rather have the vegetables than something else. So I'll grab it. And then I, I don't usually buy packaged dressing. I know it's fast, but I'll, I'll just make sure that I either make my own dressing and have it on hand, or I'll use olive oil and vinegar. Um, Cause a lot of stuff we, we ruin with really unhealthy dressings and dressings are one of the cheapest thing you could ever make and fresh dressing. I'm, I try to make dressing once a week. Um, and it's incredible. Fresh dressing is like nothing you've ever had. You don't need the sugar. You don't need all the salt. Um, there's just wonderful recipes that you can find online. Um, we have a lot of recipes that we provide, but I think salads are just a very easy thing to incorporate a lot of them. And again, you can buy these bags that are already somewhat assembled for you and then just make your own dressing and smoothies are an easy way. Um, I, again, I don't drink a lot of juice just because I like to keep the fiber in, but smoothies are a great way. You can get fruits and vegetables in, in the morning, right off the get go. So smoothies are kind of a ritual with me. I add our protein plant-based protein powder, which has got a lot of phytonutrients and superfoods in it. And it's not an overdose of protein. It's a really mild amount of protein. And then I add fruits and vegetables and that's a fairly inexpensive breakfast. And you can even freeze it in cups ahead of time and throw it in a blender. Or for me, it takes me maybe five minutes in the morning to make that. Um, so I think there's things, and, and we have on our website lots of smoothie recipes, um, but I think that's a quick thing that people can do, and you're still consuming whole plant-based food. You can still even smell it. Like, I love making blueberry and banana smoothies and things because um, I, I, I love those two fruits, and I, I can smell them and drink them and taste them, and I really enjoy it. Um, so those are just those are some tricks I personally use um, is smoothies in the breakfast. If I'm on the go, I try to stop and take a pause and eat, but it's not, I mean, I'm practical as well. And sometimes I'm rushing out the door and my daughter doesn't want to, um, you know, cooperate. So I'm putting my focus on that rather than making a elaborate breakfast. So sometimes I just do that really quickly. And, uh, and then I try to always, I would say a rule for me is always have fruits and vegetables out on my table. Um, some of the healthiest people I know, almost all of them have that in common is they always keep colorful things on their table for them and their kids to snack on. So they don't have all the chips and everything out there, but th that becomes then the first choice. Like that's always the first thing. My daughter will sometimes will come up and be like, can I have a cookie? And I'll be like, how about you eat these carrots first? And she'll be like, okay, fine. And then she just disappears and doesn't ask for the cookies again because then she's eaten that. So I try to always make fruits and vegetables the first choice. And if you look at the cost of most fruits and vegetables 
even organic, like buying a bag of carrots, they're actually pretty cheap. I, I just really challenge people to really put it on paper. Look at if you bought fruits and vegetables. Yes, it's more volume than a slab of meat. Um, but if you put the fruits and vegetables down and you pick and choose which ones you maybe buy frozen or um, this this one or that one you don't buy organic because there are certain vegetables I have somewhere in our site there's a there's a blog that I did on what they call the there's the dirty dozen and there's the clean 15 so there's about 15 fruits and vegetables that have almost no pesticide residue even conventionally farmed so those ones I tell people focus on those they have very little pesticides on them so you could buy those non-organic and then focus your organic ones on the ones that we know are really really high in pesticides and that's how I shop as well. Um, so it's, I, I do prefer organic when I can get it, but again, it, it's, there are ways that you can still save and a lot of fruits and vegetables are very low cost. Like, like legumes are a perfect example. In longevity regions, they eat about a half a cup of legumes a day. They're very filling, they're very satiating. They have great sources of fiber that trigger your body in a different way, um, or protein, and they trigger it in a different way than than most animal-based proteins. And so we really encourage people to, to consume beans. And beans, I mean, you can buy organic beans for less than a dollar a can. Um, and so there's, a, I think that's, to me, I personally believe there's a lot of myth behind that. Um, and maybe it's not quite as fast as um, grabbing something at the drive-through, but I think with actually minimal effort, you can still prepare a lot of stuff very quickly. So we always encourage people have a plan. Um, usually when your cravings hit, if you have a plan, you can be really successful combating that. If you don't have a plan, you're going to be in likely in a drive-through and, and then you're going to be beating yourself up after it. And that's what I see. We, we have some lifestyle programs where we do a lot of cognitive behavior um, therapy for people and just teaching and educate that educating them how their brain works with food and how they can have a plan and they can really cut that off before it hits them. And so I know not everyone's into meal kidding, like prepping food in advance, but even snack, you know, prepping your lunches and your snacks, even if you don't do it for breakfast and you do a quick smoothie or something like that, but you prep your lunches. Lunches can be the big determinant of the day if, if you break your routine at lunch, you're probably like, well, I already screwed up my day, so I'm, I'm going to eat pizza for dinner. Whereas if you, if you nail your lunch, it kind of sets the stage for, I think, the rest of the day. So I try to get at least a smoothie in, in the morning or a fast bar or some sort of healthy um, nutrition that I get in in the morning. My breakfasts usually aren't huge. It's just my style. Breakfast, a lot of people say should be actually your biggest meal, but for me, it's just not practical. Um, so then I try to have a really good lunch. If I hit my lunch right, it sets the rest of the day for me. And, and usually then I'm like, I had a great lunch. I want to continue that for dinner. So I really tell people, plan your lunch more than anything. Um, just, just have a plan. And it doesn't have to cost a lot. If you, if you don't have the means to get a meal kit or have a prepackaged salad, there's still a lot of quick fixes that you can get at the grocery store and have it ready to go. Can you give us a little bit of specifics on what you eat when, say, you want to have a snack, watching TV? What are some healthy things that you would go for? So healthy snacks, I, there's a few things that I, I try to consume. One of the things is, like I said, I always try to first have a fruit or vegetable. So I eat, I hated apples when I was a kid. They actually, 
I just, I don't know if I ate too many or what, but they, they would almost make me nauseous. Um, but I do eat a lot of apples now because they, the whole apple a day keeps the doctor away. I actually think there's a lot of truth to that, but they're very high in fiber. Um, they have natural sugars, but, um, they're, they're really healthy and they can really curb a sweet craving. Um, so I do try to put a lot of fruit in front of my kids. I know there's certain people that are like, I don't let my kids have any fruit, but I was like, I don't think my kids are going to eat too much fruit. So, and I don't, they don't, they maybe have one or two servings a day. And then the rest I try to get with more vegetables and legumes and healthy grains. Um, so I do try to do, um, that is a first option is fruits and vegetables. And then sometimes I'll do popcorn and, um, with the popcorn, it may be something like, uh, um, you know, <laughs> I used to hate it when my mom did this when I was a kid, but like I put brewer's yeast as the flavoring. It gives it kind of a cheesy flavor. So I try to make it healthy. It's not chalked up with a ton of butter and stuff. Um, and it can be very, very filling. Um, and then I, I eat a lot of nuts. Um, well, I wouldn't say a lot in one sitting, but I try to have nuts available as well. And especially combining those with the fruit, um, you know, having a fat with the fruit also can be, um, beneficial. So I, I do eat a few bars that are low in sugar, um, and have no added refined sugars in them and have nuts. Um, so I do sometimes have granola bars and things. Well, I call them granola bars, but they're basically healthy, healthy bars around the house. I, I do eat things like fast bars because I think having healthy nuts is, is really important. Um, and I make energy bites. We actually are launching some within our company of ones that I make. Uh, I make those for my kids. They're just healthy, basically blends of oats, nuts, um, and dried fruits. And those are something that I think is, you know, again, the fresh fruit and vegetables would be my first line of defense and then minimally processed snacks. And I don't snack a lot. I actually try not to snack. Um, I, I really try to eat most of my food within windows, but I know if I didn't eat a great lunch, that if I don't eat something at like three o'clock, my dinner is going to be a disaster. I know myself eno enough to do that. <laughs> and so then having something like an energy bite is going to curb my craving and it's going to keep me on track to have then a healthy dinner because then I'm not hungry and craving junk food. Um, so I, I've learned my limitations and where a snack for me is a good thing versus if I had a really good lunch, I usually don't need a snack. And I try actually, one of my rules is actually I try not to eat while I'm watching TV because they've actually shown psychologically you eat a lot more because you kind of mindlessly eat when you're watching TV. So I actually try not to snack as much when I'm eating um, or sorry, when I'm, when I'm watching TV. Um, sometimes we'll do like a movie night with my family and I let my kids pick out a snack and even sometimes a little bit of a treat. Um, but that's not like an every night thing. We, we do that kind of as, especially now that COVID, we, we don't really go to the movies anymore. Um, we try to do movie night occasionally at home and, and then I let the kids splurge a little bit or I might make something. Sometimes I'll make an apple pie or something. Again, it's not that my family never, ever has sugar. We're just very conscious about we're consuming this. We know it's not great for us. And this is something we're doing as a celebration. And you know, so I do that here and there, but I try to make it a very special thing that's only on certain occasions. And then, and then my family, you know, it, it's a special thing. We treat it like a special thing. So tell us a little bit about nutrition for longevity again. How does it work? How much does it cost? Give us some example meals you'd get. 
we design nutritional longevity based on the longevity diet. So it's based on these regions of the world. And we have certain ingredients that are even from those regions. So Calabria is a longevity region with multiple centenarians there. And we get our olive oil from there. Um, it's 300-year-old olive groves, never really been touched by pesticides, you know, in the entire documentation of the, of the family's history. And so um, we try to really, when we procure an ingredient, tr we try to get really special ingredients. Our coffee is, um, has, it's tested for toxins. It has zero pesticides. It's regeneratively farmed. So we have certain ingredients that I would say are pretty special. Um, and then the majority of the produce is actually coming from our own farms and we harvest it. The, the nice thing about owning our farms is we can control the supply chain. So we can pick stuff at its prime, literally the night before it's being processed. So our team starts processing it the, the day they receive it through the night and then we ship it out the next day. And so we really have a really, really fast cycle time in getting the, the food to people. And that's because we don't want um, the nutrient degradation to go on too long because nutrients, you know, phytonutrients do break down over time. So we try to really retain that as much as possible. Um, and so we, what we do is we, um, our chefs and dietitians work together to hit perfect macronutrients. So we have exact calorie levels and we have exact macronutrients that every diet is balanced or every meal is balanced to. So we balance the day of meals and we balance the individual meals and that allows people to have more of a stable insulin throughout the day. So we, we try not to create insulin spikes with our food and we try to combine them in a way that, you know, if you do have a fruit, um, even though a fruit will give you more insulin, we try to put it with a healthy grain or a fat. So it also slows down that insulin absorption in the body or, or um, and it, it allows you time to absorb it so it doesn't just start to circulate. So we really are very, very um, specific in how we combined different ingredients. So like for us, a breakfast um, might be something like a simple oatmeal and a fruit blend that we make with minimal processing. We don't add sugars to it. So we might add uh, a little bit of dried fruit or um, potentially, I think the main thing that we do, if we do sweeten with anything, it's maple syrup or maple sugar. But even that we really try to keep out of almost every dish. Um, so that would be like an example of a breakfast or we may have a vegan scramble, which is like a, it has no eggs in it. All of our, all of our vegan stuff is, is vegan and even our pescatarians all vegan other than the fish. So we really try to do a very low inflammation diet that's mainly plants and legumes. And so we may um, have chickpeas in there. Um, we may have brewers use different things and that may not sound great, but then we work on the flavor profile with our chefs um, to use certain ingredients that really give us that incredible flavor. It might have sweet potatoes shredded in it, black beans, different things that would make it like a Nicoyan Costa Rica inspired scramble or something like that. So the breakfasts rotate around to be different things. We try to get a lot of diversity into that. Um, and you don't have to buy our breakfast. Some people are like, I don't really like breakfast or I just want a bar or something like that. And we're like, that's fine. Um, and then our lunches are typically a salad. We get the most servings of fruits and vegetables in our lunches. Um, and they're either a salad with leafy greens that we grow on our farm. Um, and then they'll usually have other components like maybe some legumes. Maybe they'll have like uh, just one yesterday that the team was making had chickpeas, lentils, radishes, carrots, 
lettuce, kale, um, and then a, a house-made dressing. And that would be what would be in, like, potentially an example dish. We have some that have noodles, so it might be um, Okinawa-inspired, and it might have noodles, and uh, an in-house, like, tamari sauce that um, might have, like, a, a kind of like a Buddha bowl with different brightly colored um, cabbages and radishes and carrots and things like that that we combine so our our lunches are typically very vibrant a lot of different color we try to get five colors on the plate whenever possible um, so you get that biodiversity as well uh, in your food and then dinners are either vegan or pescatarian so if somebody picks a vegan dish they might get like a fritter or a patty um, with say a a roasted vegetable side or something like that or they might get a pasta dish that's a gluten-free vegan pasta um, with a in-house sauce and then vegetables on the side so we really also try to be diverse all of our dishes are inspired by at least one of the regions so it could be Nicoya Costa Rica, Sardinia, Calabria, Italy, um, Icaria Greece there's multiple different kind of hot spots that we focus on and those dishes are inspired by those regions. And then pescatarian is similar as far as it might be pasta with um, vegetables, but you might get like a sustainably caught black cod filet with that. Um, and those are prepared by our chefs and they're able to be heated in a microwave within three minutes or stovetop or in an oven in about 10 minutes. So we do try to make it ultra convenient. Um, our average price of our dishes, it depends on how many you buy without discount range from 10 to $12. Um, and that's fully packaged and prepared. And if you buy a full day worth of food that includes healthy snacks. So we'll put organic um, nut and dry, dried fruit, or it might have our signature energy bites, or it might have our smoothie powders. Um, we rotate in different um, uh, snacks that are healthy snacks for people that especially in our lifestyle program we try to kind of train people to know where their triggers are and to use those snacks as a way to counteract that um, and you can buy uh, them in different configurations so if you want less meals or more meals the cost goes down with the, the more meals that you buy um, and then we also sell just even produce boxes for people that just want clean produce um, and those are our seasonal produce that we're growing on the farm or sometimes we contract with local farms like for example our orchards aren't fully in production yet so we might buy apples from an organic orchard you know down the road from our farm um, but that's farm fresh produce that we put in the boxes and those um oh gosh <laughs> i think those are um 75 and that depends also on we cover the shipping so all of our stuff is free shipping um, and that's basically a pretty large produce box for a full family. And we are going to offer rotations where it's not a weekly subscription, but every other week um, for people that that's just a lot of produce. Because um, those are about um, 13 to 15 pounds. So it's a pretty, pretty high amount of produce in the boxes. And we, we have everything from blackberries from the farm in there to butternut squash. It just really depends what's on season, but we always try to give a really good balance. And then we always have leafy greens um, and microgreens in the boxes because we grow those year round in our greenhouse as well. Um, so we, we try to get a lot of leafy greens out to 
our population so they can get those into their diet. So, um, so yeah, those are the main things. And then we sell a la carte, our olive oil, our coffee. We're launching in about a month, our boost blends, which are our um, clean plant-based protein powders that are freeze dried um, whole fruits and vegetables. Um, so it has a really high fiber content. We actually add a little bit of fiber just because most people are not getting enough fiber. So it helps people with regularity as well. Um, and it's, it's fully designed to feed the gut microbiome. Um, and then we're, we have chocolate in our meal kits too, a really good raw dark chocolate. Um, and we're going to be launching that in about a month as well, um, as a standalone item, because people always ask for more chocolate. Um, so yeah, so those are just some of the things that we offer. Um, the best place to find us is nutritionforlongevity.com. And uh, we have a blog. Uh, you can sign up for emails where we give a lot of recipes and just guidance and education because, you know, obviously we're a company. Um, so there is the revenue piece, but more, more than anything, we really want to educate people so people can ask for the book. Um, we actually ship the book if people are interested in their box for free. Um, we really, we really encourage people to just get educated about clean food and healthy eating and fasting um, so they can just really take control of their health and their life as much as possible because there's so much they're saying now, I think it, we used to believe 80% was out of our control, just the cards that we were dealt with our genetics and we're realizing it's the reverse. We really control about 80% of it unless you're born with a very, you know, specific um, genetic disorder or something like that. Um, for the majority of us, we really can have a heavy impact on that with our food choices and our lifestyle choices. Um, so we just really like to get the word out there and educate people, even if they don't buy our products. Um, that's something that we want to be able to offer. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how they can work with dietitians. Yeah. So one of the things um, that's really important to us is the education piece, because there's just so much misinformation out there about food. Um, so we have registered dietitians on our team that help design the diet um, based on the longevity diet macros and um, philosophy and science. Um, but they do the day-to-day -day development with our chefs. And the other thing that they provide is free consultations. So anyone that's interested um, can book a free consultation even before they purchase um, the meal kits. And then also if you are, for example, you don't know what the best meal kit is for you or what the right calorie range is, um, they can definitely walk you through that. They provide recipes. There's a lot of different guidance and support that they can provide. So that is a service that we believe is really important just to help with the education and um, just help answer any questions and make this a really personalized experience for people. Um, so definitely something I'd encourage people to take advantage of if they have any questions about um, their diet or nutrition, because um, I think dietitians can really help people out a lot with that information. Well, it sounds wonderful. Do we get a discount code? You do. Yes. So um, definitely I'll have my team uh, provide your, your group a discount code. And like I said, if anyone wants the book, they can reach out and we can add that to their order. Um, Cause I think it's a fascinating book. Um, what I love about it is Dr. Longo is really a, a purist with his science. Um, he really wants to prove why these things are so beneficial and then, you know, build on that and create, you know, make, make these things available in as convenient of a way as we can. 
So I think it's just great to see that science. And he goes much more in depth into different chronic illnesses than obviously I did. Um, but I just think it'll be fascinating for people to to read that and, and to just hear it from, from his perspective. And uh, yeah, so definitely we, we will um, get you that code. Thank you so much for your time. This was so informative and I'm going to put everything in the show notes and the corresponding blog post. So thank you so much. And I look forward to trying one of your boxes. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on and and to your audience for um, taking the time to listen. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you made it this far, I'm sure you found some benefit to the hard work that I put into the show. Show your support by subscribing to the podcast. Leave me a voicemail question or email me at thehealthfulgypsy at gmail.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you. Be sure to join the Facebook group. You can find all that information in the show notes and my website, katkatibi.com. This podcast is for informational merrymakings and metaphysical purposes only. Statements and views are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kakatibi, disclaim any adverse effects by the use of information you may have heard. Opinions of guests are totally their own. This podcast does not endorse statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications, credibilities, or sanity. Individuals may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to on the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, consult with a licensed medical physician, not just the spirit of your ancestors while on ayahuasca.